Testing, testing. One, two, three. Testing. Yeah, no, you're not sick. I'm, I'm the one with a cold, but it's not COVID. I took a, took a test. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Old Bible Podcast. We are recording this week because I don't have COVID, and uh, we are going to talk. I'm excited to talk about Genesis chapter two, um, and Genesis chapter two is really like Genesis one that we covered a couple weeks ago, a really important um, foundation laying chapter for um, understanding the entire Bible. And it's a chapter that has to do with us, with, with humanity, with, with mankind. And, um, you know, the, I've said before, I don't know if I said it a couple weeks ago, but uh, Genesis chapter one, the only character who does anything is God. And so that should let you know it's a chapter about who God is and what he does. Um, and now we're going to talk about uh, mankind. But once again, mankind doesn't do much in chapter two. It's mostly God acting upon mankind. The first thing we really see mankind doing of their own volition, I guess you'd say, is in chapter three. And it ain't a good thing <laughs> they do. <laughs> so um, anyway, that with that little introduction said, um, do you have anything you want to say up front about Genesis 2 before we just dive in and read it? Okay. We fixed our sound issues. You were just about to say something very insightful about oh, Genesis chapter 2. Oh, yes, no doubt insightful. Uh, it's just that in chapter 2, verse 4, which is what we're picking up, there, there is, I don't know if you would call it a debate or a discussion, is this a second creation account? Right. Uh, not that there's a second creation, but a second account of the same creation, or is this more of a specific look at a general event? And and I think there's good arguments to consider all around, uh, you know, because it's and it usually relates to things like, the order, you know, man created, then animal, animal, then man, things such as that. And and again, I don't know that we're going to get into that kind of nitpicky detail here. I don't know that there's any profit to it. But it is interesting to note that the chapter break is unfortunate. And that's something that I, you know, had to learn. You know, chapter two should have broke between verses three and four. Uh, and of course, they, nobody's going to change that to my liking, but it would have made a lot more sense. Though. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've also read a good bit about sort of the, the I, you know, the debate about whether this is a second creation account or, or what exactly we, you know, people mean when they say that it's a second creation account. I mean, to me, it's very obvious that, um, that uh, chapter one through uh, two, three, and then three, four to the end of the chapter are two separate literary units that have been put together okay let's see if that's any better yeah we're back to normal okay um so i don't know where we left off before we had sound issues again but i'm just going to go back and say what i said uh, it, to me it's pretty clear that th that these two accounts have been stitched together in an intentional way um by you know a, you know either an author or an editor and and we can we'll talk more as we go about sort of the composition of the Torah and and how some ways that that might have come about. Um, again, I feel like w with all this stuff, we need to make certain affirmations up top. And so I'll just go ahead and say uh, that I think it's you know I I certainly believe that that uh, Moses was uh, involved heavily uh, in the uh, in the formation of the Torah and that uh, 
the, and that while there almost certainly was later editing that happened, later editing that happened, uh, you know, anyway, so Moses is the, is the ultimate author of, uh, of the Torah, even though I'm sure there were other hands involved along the line. But, uh, however, we came to have Genesis one first and then Genesis two second, um, it bothers me a little bit when people will refer to it as a second creation account, just because I think that, um, while, while there, there is a case that can be made that this is kind of zooming in onto the making man part of the Genesis one account, uh, you know, I think that, uh, it doesn't really qualify in the sense of Genesis one is explaining how everything came to be and came to be in the specific way that we now interact with it. But, uh, Genesis two seems to be more about how man came to be the way that he is, uh, and what God's purpose for man is. So Genesis one is focused on the cosmos. And in that sense, I think it can be properly called a creation account. But Genesis 2, to me, can only really be called a creation account to the extent that it refers to the creation of man, the you know establishment of man. But I, I don't know what your uh, take on this no, is. No, I think those are good thoughts. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I just know that that floats out there. And oh, yeah. I don't know. That, like I said, I don't know we have to deal with it. I think you know the more traditional position is, is very safe and very comfortable, and it doesn't change the message of the, of the scriptures at all. And I, some people just like to, to rattle cages for fun. And I'm not oh, saying yeah. that there's not merit to do that. I'm just oh, saying yeah. I don't know that I want to, we need to get into all that. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what comes up. But let's go ahead and uh, I'm going to have you read, uh, I'm just going to have you read the whole thing through Genesis 4 through Genesis 25. All right, so reading from the ESV, which is what's pulled up here on my little phone. So chapter 2, verse 4. Yep. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out uh, flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so, um, so okay, let's go back to verse 4. Um, this is, uh, the, you know, my NIV says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. The, the Hebrew is this, uh, these are the generations. Uh, and that uh, sort of, uh, the Hebrew word is toldot. I think that's how you say that. I'm not totally sure. Um, that's a, that is a word that refers to a genealogical account. And in every other place, you'll see that word. It's, you know, the generations of some ancestral forefather, and then you'll trace the line down. But in this, uh, in this chapter, the ancestral, uh, forefather, so to speak, is the heavens and the earth. Um, and, and this, this is a genealogy springing from their creation, uh, when the when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, and that that phrase that in your Bibles is most likely translated Lord God, um, that Hebrew term is Yahweh Elohim. So it's a it's actually a bit of an unusual term for God in the Old Testament in that it's not used that often. Um, but here it is, and it pops up in a few places too. Um, and I don't know what your take on how to really uh, understand that word is other than Yahweh will come to be the, the personal name, which Israelites and later second temple Jews used to identify God. Um, and eventually it will come to be somewhat taboo to even speak the name Yahweh out loud. Um, if for fear of, of, of taking his name, uh, in vain, um, but but the phrase here Yahweh Elohim I think is meant to denote to a, a very you know to an ancient minded audience uh, who would have almost you know whatever culture they came from acknowledged the existence of many Elohim or many divine beings um, specifically uh, what's being discussed here is Yahweh the God of Israel the Elohim Yahweh um, who in other places we're going to see. You know, there is no other Elohim like him. Um, so he is unique among among these divine beings. Um, but So I think that's what's being uh, denoted there with that phrase. But what do you think that? Now, that's some interesting observations because, you know, as far as the name of God, you know, God is not his name. We've talked about this before. The name of God, the best that we can call it that, is often called the Tetragrammaton, and its 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 origin or its first time we we see it is in Exodus chapter three, when God is speaking to Moses from the bush that was burning but not being consumed, and Moses says, "I am all right. I'll go talk to these people, but what should I tell them? Your name is basically my paraphrase." And God says, "Aya, Esher, Aya," which means "I am will I am what I am. I will be what I will be." 
And he goes on to say to tell the people of Israel, I am a Yah uh, has sent me to you. God further said to Moses, this Say this to the people of Israel, yud Hey vav Hey, which is the word, the, the consonantal name of God, because we don't know what the vowels would have been. Anyway, so that's the first time we actually see that in what you might call like the chronological narrative of someone who would have written Scripture. And, and as you've already stated, if indeed I believe he did, Moses wrote or recorded these accounts here in Genesis 1 and 2. This name, which is translated, like you say, Yahweh, or the Jews today would pronounce it Adonai. When I took my Hebrew class, we weren't allowed to pronounce Yahweh. We were supposed to say Adonai. Uh, and, and so it, it does reference the name, uh, the personal name of God here uh, in chapter 2. And so I think that is an interesting thing that Moses is doing uh, in writing this, this chapter 2 account here, uh, in, here in, in Genesis, where he's, he's like, it's this God, this one that I met in the bush that I introduced to you and brought you out here to Sinai to meet and get to know. Yeah, from that account in Exodus of the, of the burning bush, uh, you know, God is saying, I am that I am, which is basically um, God saying, shut up, don't ask my name. <laughs> Uh, uh, I mean, not, it's, it's more complex than that, of course, but, but basically, uh, God is, uh, iterating to Moses that, um, look, it doesn't matter what you call me. I, I will be, I am what I am. Uh, and so if you want to call me anything, uh, state that he is right. And so the the explanation that I have heard that makes the most sense to me about what that word Yahweh means is that uh, it is the uh, it's sort of the other grammatical form of that of that same uh, name that's used there in Exodus three I think it is um, that it basically the word Yahweh basically means he is uh, and and uh, and so here where it says Yahweh Elohim right it's he is Elohim. He is uh, he is God, uh, and so uh, there's again ev- in every different way that you see God's identity identified, there is important information conveyed to that ancient audience about the nature of this God that they're serving. You know that's something. If you tie back your thoughts to chapter one, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and all through that chapter it's Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Yeah. But which Elohim or who Elohim? Well, chapter two tells us who Elohim. It's it's Yahweh Elohim. It is it is the Lord God, the Almighty, the God Most High Elohim. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, usually in the Old Testament, you'll have either one or the other, right? It'll be either Yahweh or it'll be Elohim. Um, and but here you get both. And uh, my study Bible says that you also get Yahweh Elohim in Exodus nine verse thirty. Um, but it's pretty rare in the Old Testament to have that Yahweh Elohim uh, name. Uh, so I think it is significant that it's used here. But then we go down to, ber- to uh, verse 5, and it says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. There was no man to work the ground as the is the literal sense of the Hebrew, no Adam. So um, uh, I was talking about this a little bit in the in the first episode. There's been a lot of debate about this verse, too, about what it means that there was no 
uh, it appears to be indicating there was no vegetation on the earth and and no rain. I'm not convinced of that kind of absolute reading. I think there's a good argument to be made that what's being referred to here is um, plants being cultivated for agriculture. Certainly, if you read uh, Josephus, which I'm not swearing by everything Josephus ever said, but what he was saying was is generally seems to have been based on uh, existing traditions in the Second Temple period. His interpretation of this is that it refers to agriculture, that man was not yet farming, and no rain can refer to uh, no predictable uh, weather patterns that man had figured out yet how to use for agricultural purposes. Um, but then, you know, some people would, would scream about that interpretation and say that it has to literally mean that it hadn't rained on earth yet. And to those people, I say, whatever, <laughs> uh, tomato, tomato. But uh, it, it's, it seems like however you read that, um, there's no self-sustaining farming activity going on in humanity. Uh, and, the, and, you know, depending on how you read it, there may not even be people at all. Um, but again, I don't lean toward that interpretation because it seems like pretty clearly man is already made in chapter one. Um, but I mean, if you, if you take chapter two as zooming in on, uh, you know, day six, um, then it's not really a, a problem. So however you read that, uh, it's just, uh, interesting the way this is phrased, but maybe you have a totally different take on it. I don't know. I don't know. I used to kind of go with the microscopic view approach of these chapters and read them almost like proof texts of science. Right. And and I, I no longer do that. I think that's a vain effort. I, in fact, I zoom out to the 50,000 foot level and all I see in chapters one and two is that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God brought order to chaos. And part of his order is the natural creation, the way he designed it, set it up, it's with mankind in it, reigning and ruling, serving as his imager. It's with plants and weather and animals doing their thing. And, you know, interestingly enough, throughout creation, the only part of creation that you, that you could say is consistently obedient to God is the natural elements that are non-human. Yeah. You know, weather does what weather is supposed to do, always has. Animals do what animals do. Plants do what plants do. Humans are the ones who have the free will to disobey. But I see order out of chaos in all this. Yeah, and... And, uh, you know, that goes well with, with six, that water's coming up from the ground and watering the whole surface of the earth. Again, I mean, you know, some people have tried to say this is like a different kind of like water cycle that's specific to this period in time. And again, you know, whatever. But uh, the, what, however you read it, God is providing water for the land, for the earth. It's all running according to his will, uh, to his design. Um, but then... There's action taken by God in verse 7 where God uh, forms or fashions a man, and it's the same kind of language that you see used in chapter 1 about God forming you know, life on earth and the earth itself. Um, uh, he forms man from the, from the dust or the dirt of the earth, from the Adamah, uh, and there is a play on words there between Adam's name and the name for dirt or, or clay uh, in the... Uh, in the uh, Old Testament in Hebrew, and he breathes into his nostrils, into his nose, the breath of life, and man became a living being, or uh, I, I'm pretty sure, I'd have to look this up, but I'm almost 99% sure the word there is nahash, a, 
uh, or uh, oh no, that's the word for uh, for serpent. Excuse serpent. me, um, nefesh, isn't it? Yeah, nefesh. Yeah, okay. Uh, you're up. you're the Hebrew guy. You got to correct me on this stuff sometimes. Yeah, uh, it's it's the word for living soul, living self, um, and it's again a word that can have several different usages, but it has to do with conscious, sentient life um, that uh, and and having a an identity, a self. Um, and it's a word that is usually referred to, you know, you used about humans, but it also is referred, you know, animals are said to have a, a self, a, a uh, nefesh, a soul uh, as well. Um, and, you know, you could have a biblical debate, too, about, uh, you know, what kind of a soul do animals have? How is it the same or different from from us? And not really clear answers on that in, in the Bible. But I think what's indicated is that uh all life on earth comes from the same source uh, and is, you know, a part of God's will. Um, but man becomes a, a living self, um, a living soul. And so uh, there's been a lot of debate about what that means. Um, and I tend to lean toward in the context of Genesis 2, it has to do with man becoming aware of his position in creation um, becoming aware of himself generally, and then uh, God giving man, um, you know, ingredients that are needed to perform the function that he's been assigned to. Um, so, because one of the the, the the next sort of section, what you're going to see is man begins to work in the garden that God gives him uh, as a servant of of God in, in what you could argue is a kind of a priestly capacity. Um, and so I think um, God takes man, gives him what he needs to perform that function, and that is uh, that is the breath of life. Now, you could also read this as, again, zooming in on day six, uh, and God. this is literally the process of God making man, uh, and, and that would be fine too. Uh, I mean... If, again, if you're reading this in sort of a very modern, rational, point A to point B kind of way, I mean, scientifically, there is a problem with the idea that man is made of, of dirt. We are made of dirt in the sense that we go back to the to the earth when we die, and our bodies decompose, and very soon we're just a big pile of dust. But uh, if you break down the flesh of a person under a microscope... It's not literally dirt. It's made of a bunch of stuff, mostly water, you know. Uh, so, uh, but I think that uh, to ancient Israelites, what this meant would have been pretty clear, that um, that we are a part of, of one created order with the earth, with the plant life, with the animal life, and that, uh, you know, that is, uh, that's our source, and that is where we're going back to uh, when we're gone. Uh, but... Um, what's, what's your take on seven? Do some damage control on everything I just said. There. <laughs> no, I, I think you got good thoughts on that, and I don't know that I'll touch much of it. The one thing that was popping in my mind while you were talking was this idea of the, the breathed into his nostrils, and my mind just jumped right to the song of Moses over in Exodus 15. And I don't, I don't want to go down too far a rabbit trail, but uh, Exodus 15 is the song that the people in Moses sang after they passed through the, 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 the ocean, the sea, and their delivery from Egypt. And it talks about how 
with a blast from your nostrils, the water piled up. So the, the, the Lord God's breath of his nostrils. And that's, that's the word ruach, which is the same word that's used for the spirit of God, the breath of God, the, the ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit. And there's, there's something there, and I don't know what it is. And I don't want to, like I said, I don't open a can of worms that we're not going to intend to dig through. But there's something there, just like you see the spirit of God hovering over the, 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 over the surface of the waters in chapter 1 and verse 2. You have this breath of God, a spirit of God coming into man. And I don't know, what's the deal with nostrils in Old Testament stuff? Well, what, what I've studied about this uh uh, and it seems like I've fixed my sound issues now. What what I've studied about this is that uh, this seems to be uh, an Egyptian image that's being appropriated by Moses. Because you can read stuff that's older than Hebrew in Egyptian literature. And I think Walton talks about this in Lost World of Genesis 1 and 2 as well. Um you can read in Egyptian literature uh, stuff about babies being born and the breath of life being breathed into their nostrils by either Ra or Amun or one of the other Egyptian deities. Um, and so I think it, it does go back to Egyptian culture, and it was uh, it, the nostril uh, was associated with, with breath and life. Uh, to the Egyptians, and the idea of the breath of life seems to originate uh, in Egypt, although it seems to be kind of a broader, you know, Mesopotamian, Middle Eastern idea as well. Makes good sense. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that's that's my understanding of it, at least. And um, so, after this point, man is a is a living being. Now, uh, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man, the man he had formed. So, again, people get a kind of a strange idea that that the entire earth was Eden uh, sometimes, and that's just not what the text says. The, the Eden is a is a region or a location that has directionality. It's in the east, whatever that means. Uh, we don't really have any context by which to understand what that means because there's not been any sort of locations given yet. Well, they try with the people try to assign a place by the names of the rivers, tigers, yes. Euphrates, and all that. But that's that's difficult too, as as we'll talk about, because we can very clearly identify two of those rivers; they still exist today, and then the other two, nobody knows. Because either either they have different names now, or they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, Eden's a really, 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 really important concept in Scripture. It's it's humanity's original home. It's the place God made for humanity to be placed in, and He would dwell with humanity. And 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 I think I mentioned this at some point. I don't know this recording or another. We we get back to the garden, right? Revelation twenty two. We get back to it, a restored, renewed Eden. Uh, and, and you can spiritualize that fully or, or it doesn't matter. It's, it's this idea of coming full circle back to this place. And, and so Eden was, was this temple space where, where man was to dwell with God in perfect harmony, unity, uh, and, and it's just a beautiful image. And so you'll see in, in Eden was a garden, but Eden was also a mountainous area. It was an elevated area. When you see out of Eden, rivers flowed out. And we all know river yeah. water runs downhill. So it when you see, you could, you could easily say it was a mountain, 
uh, Ezekiel talks about is Ezekiel or Isaiah. I have to look up. One of them talks about the mountain of God, the garden of God, Eden. It's a mountain garden scene. And that type of imagery is really important in biblical um, literature, understanding mountains are where God's dwelt, gardens are where God's dwelt. And here we have a mountainous garden where God put this dirt man to be with him in perfect harmony. Yeah, and you know this is maybe either neither here nor there, but when people talk about trying to locate Eden or where it may have been. It seems like people either fixate on one of two locations. Most people and myself included, I think you know, you tend to think, well, if this is written to ancient Israelites, then you could assume East means East of Israel. So um, people, I I think leaning toward maybe the more mountainous interpretation, will try to put it uh, East, East and North uh, sort of in the mountains of Turkey uh, around Ararat, where we see uh, the ark coming to rest uh, later on uh, uh, in Genesis. Uh, I've also heard a theory that uh, it, there could have possibly been a southern location uh, because there's lots of geological evidence that the Persian Gulf wasn't always as big as it was now, so there may have been a lowland oasis sort of in the, what's now the south part of Iraq, but actually what's now the Persian Gulf, because the theory is that after the flood, the, you know, the, the, the lines of where, uh, where the water comes to changed pretty dramatically. So, um, I don't know, uh, who's right or if any of that's right, I don't really care at all. Um, but the point is, um, that it, it could have, wherever it was, um, God made it to be, a perfect dwelling place for man. But then the idea was that man was supposed to um, be fruitful and multiply and increase that perfection on the face of the earth. So that was man's purpose in Eden as so far as I can tell. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's what we see is that God put man in the garden. There was that verse 15, you know, the Lord put the, the, the man, the person in the garden to cultivate it, to care for it. And when you combine that with what he he said about humanity to be fruitful and multiply and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it in, in verse 28 of chapter one. Clearly humanity was supposed to turn all of the Eretz, the land, the, the, the planet into an Eden space by making more humans, more people. And, and that's, that's going to become a really important concept in the failure of humanity. when we look at what happens in chapter six and uh, chapter 11, especially uh, a little bit later, but yeah, Eden is a really important image, and it it's because of this mountain garden combined imagery that we'll see throughout Scripture. It's where God and man overlap. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, so you see, God uh, God gives them, uh, you know, God makes all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, and these are trees that are that are beautiful to look at, good for food. Uh, and but in the middle of the garden, there's the tree of life, and there's the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is setting up what's going to be a big conflict in the next chapter. And, uh, you know, not to foreshadow too much, but people talk about Genesis chapter three as the fall a lot, which I don't have anything against that, that way of discussing it necessarily, as long as you understand properly what's meant by that. But really, uh, Bible project guys try to refer to it as the loss, which I think is almost, 
more biblical in that like uh, you Adam and Eve don't uh Adam and Eve don't become fallen creatures in the sense that they eat the 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 fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and then because of that they die they die because they lose their access to the tree of life god cuts them off from it as a consequence of their disobedience so uh they i think that adam and eve here when we see them in chapter two are it's not that they're magically immortal they're mortal i think in the same way that we are but they have the antidote to mortality which is the tree of life and so as long as they stay in the garden and stay obedient to god's will they can stay in a state of blissfully living forever which is uh when we get again to revelation that's what is that's how uh god's intentions for us eschatologically are discussed what what we will ultimately do in heaven for lack of a better way to discuss it easily um is live in that blissful state of immortality forever um with full access to that same tree of life um so yeah uh jump in if you got anything but if not we'll talk about the rivers I, I, we can talk about the rivers. I just, for whatever it's worth, if anybody's interested, I, I know you are, and I, I am as well. Second Temple period literature from the, the the Jewish people can give a lot of profitable insight into understanding the imagery and and just how people in the time of the New Testament would have thought about these types of concepts. I, in my mind, I think a lot about the book of First Enoch, uh, which is a really interesting read. If if anybody's ever you know played with that one a little bit, and and you you see how even Enoch, when he's taken on his tour, he sees these beautiful trees, and he just loves to gaze at them. And he sees he sees one. He's in the presence of one that has this smell that's un- indescribable. And and so the again the image of trees. Uh, it was really important to Second Temple period literature which is obviously very important for how we understand and interpret New Testament scripture and things such as that. But a lot of those things will have their origins and roots right here in this passage, this section of Genesis 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, okay, so before you know, we get bogged down forever on some of this stuff, but I want to hit the rivers pretty quick. So we get uh, the river that waters the garden flows from Eden, and it separates into four headwaters. We get the Pishon. Uh, that flows through the entire land of Havilah, which uh, most people agree that Havilah is uh, the Hebrew word for what we now call Arabia. Um, and then, uh, and there's gold there, the text says. And then in parentheses, the gold of that land is good, aromatic resin. And all. So we get, we get these details that seem kind of strange to us as modern people, but I think they would have been... Um, strong identifiers of certain locations to people in the ancient past. Um, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush, which Cush is uh, the Hebrew word for what we now call Ethiopia. But there's more debate about that word uh, because there are other possibilities for what it could mean. Cause um, it, it could also refer to uh, could be something of a, translation error where it could refer to uh cast the Kasim, which is uh i think i'm using the right term there which is more uh sort of toward what we now think of as modern iran um and you know uh that that region so not exactly sure even of the location or the direction of 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 that 
uh, of the river that that's referring to. And then the, then we get the, the third and fourth rivers, which are the Tigris and the Euphrates. And it's interesting, we don't get any little descriptors like we do with the first two for the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, which uh, almost tends to make me think that these were rivers that didn't exist at the time this was written. The, the first two, which would imply that we're talking about events here that happened a very long, long time ago. Uh, but again, th- this is all just theorizing on my part. I, I really don't know and nobody does, but I think it's interesting that uh, m- so much emphasis is placed on the rivers and rivers become a very important biblical image going forward. Yeah. Tie it right back to re- into revelation, the river flowing from the throne of God, the river of life. So rivers, mountains, gardens, trees, really important images. Yeah. Okay. So we get the rivers and then God takes the man and puts him in the garden of Eden to work it and to tend it or take care of it. And the Lord God commands the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So, um, basically, God says, work the garden, tend it. I think we, you know, we can rightly assume that that means to make it increase, to, uh, as we already discussed, you know, multiply the perfection on the face of the earth. Um, but there is one rule which is don't eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil because you'll die if you do. Um, And so we've already discussed this, but it's not actually a direct result of eating that fruit that they, that they die. And that's kind of what they're thinking that it will be. But then Satan is, or or the accuser probably more accurately is like, nah, you won't die. Um, uh, So they don't die immediately, but their access to the tree of life is cut off. And as a result of that, they will ultimately die. Um, And so uh, the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a, a helper suitable for him. Um, And the, the term that term for suitable helper is very interesting in the Hebrew. It can be translated a whole bunch of different ways. I've heard people translate it um, corresponding counterpart. That's one that I like a lot. Um, You know, suitable helper in the English makes it almost sound like that, you know, basically the Eve is like his, his slave that's like going to help him out. And that's not uh, really a connotation that would have been there. I think to the original Hebrew audience, the original Hebrew audience, I think already had deeply embedded in their culture, the idea that a man alone is incomplete without a woman and that the woman is incomplete without the man and that they, they, Almost like you know the the Taoist yin yang symbol. They they sort of fill each other's uh, inadequacies and and um, and they complement and 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 help and help one another through life. And that that's that's part of God's design for man and woman, and ultimately for the multiplication of mankind on the earth for families. Um, and and so God is saying it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him one suitable for him or one who is corresponding to him, one who you know, fills his, uh, his inadequacies and his, his needs. So, uh, and then the text says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. So that had formed is I think important because it does mean past tense. Like 
So again, I'm saying, I, I don't know exactly where we are in the timeline of creation to you, you know, I don't have a better term to use than that, but I know they're already animals. So maybe they were made earlier that day or <laughs> maybe not. I don't know, but, uh, there, there are animals around, but now God brings them before man and just in the same way that God has named certain things in Genesis 1, he's named day and night, he's n- named you know sky and land, um, man is now given the task of assigning a name to all these living creatures. Um, and I think, uh, like in Genesis 1, man is also assigning functions to these animals and is, um, for his own purposes, identifying them which animals can be domesticated, which can't, which have this use, which have that use. And man is filling that role of that, that, that sort of godlike role within the microcosm of the earth of managing and, you know, to some extent controlling these resources. Um, so he brought them to see what he would name them. And man called every, whatever man called living creature, that's, that was his name. So there we see that power invested in man, whatever man says the thing is called, that's what it's called. And so man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals or the beasts of the field. So, um, yeah, cool stuff. Mankind gets to be the judge of, of all the earth. Got anything there? Well, they're functioning in a very much the same way we see angelic beings as functioning as God's divine counsel. They're repre- his representatives to help him administrate for lack of a better term over the supernatural realm we see mankind is supposed to help god in administration type duties and management type work of his creation not we're not just supposed to be here in a passing through as we often sing and say it's we're here to 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 work the the the, the planet to to tend it and to to manage it and to make it better not just bide our time till we get off this rock we are supposed to make this place a better place oh yeah yeah you know i i, I love that song and i actually love that that phrase the idea of being a wanderer a stranger on the earth and I think that's a deeply biblical idea, but I think people get the wrong idea about it sometimes. That, like you said, that we're just biding our time or we're you know, waiting to die, and uh, that's not what God intends for us. I think that especially when we get to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, but this is all through the Old Testament. Uh, there's an emphasis on not getting too attached to things here, not becoming too. Um, not identifying oneself with this life here first and foremost, because it's not forever and it'll be over before you know it. Um, I mean, that's sort of basic biblical wisdom, but that doesn't mean we're just waiting, you know, uh, to, uh, to get out of this life and, and get our reward. That's, um, I don't know. To me, that's almost like a, uh, a nihilist perspective within sort of the biblical worldview a misunderstanding of, of what some of this early stuff in Genesis means. We have a purpose here. We're not here for no reason. It would be weird if God did put us here for no reason. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, we're here to, to tend the, the earth and to, uh, uh, basically be God's administrators. And you, you hit on this in the supernatural class. Like people will sometimes ask why, why would God need a divine counsel? Why would God need these, uh, these created servants? And, and, you know, 
the I mean, why does God need need us? Uh, the answer is he doesn't. He doesn't need anything. But uh, it was his design. It was his will uh, to have uh, both uh, divine, angelic aid, counsel, uh, and and also to have us to have us as his representatives. Um, on and both the of those groups function very much like a family, yeah, a dynastic family where you had the the king or the emperor or the ruler and his sons administrating in his kingdom. And so God is the father figure, and we are his sons, the sons of God. And that's a term we see all through Scripture to refer to both supernatural beings and and humans. Yeah. So all these animals are named, but. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Adam still doesn't have his his other half, so to speak. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. I don't know what your ESV said there. Did it also say deep sleep? Pull it back up. Yeah. Uh, right he falls into a deep sleep, yeah, and, deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs uh, and then closed up the place with flesh. That word for rib... Um, it's a very it's a strange Hebrew word that you don't get many times in the Bible, and it's often translated rib, which I think is maybe kind of unfortunate because I think probably a more accurate reading would be Adam's side um, from the side of his body uh, the woman is taken, and I think that more clearly indicates sort of the roles, right? Woman is to go by man's side and man by the side of woman and 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 they're to function to walk together side by side through life um and so we get this idea sometimes that like you still hear people say it that like uh that uh man has one fewer rib than than woman, which is not true at all medically, so I don't know why people keep saying that um well, one man did. I, yeah, I mean, I guess if that's the way Not you read mind. it, but but the other thing I was going to say is that this this term for deep sleep is a term that you will see popping up a lot in the Old Testament. And it almost always has to do with a, not just like a deep sleep, like you conk out for 12 hours, but it has to do with being in a, in a trance. Yeah. So it, it it's a, it's a sleep that is, uh, deeper than, than, than normal sleep. And it's a it's a kind of sleep in which oftentimes you'll see characters seeing visions of the divine in in this sleep that they're in or this trance that they're in. Yeah, it's the same kind of sleep that Abraham uh, Abram or Abraham falls yeah. into in Genesis fifteen. Yeah, I was thinking about referencing that passage. Yeah, the the, the you know Abraham asks for a sign basically to know for certain that what God has promised him will come true. And so God gives it to him, but in order to see this sign, Abraham first falls into a trance. So, um, again, I think it has to do with revelation from God to man, a a specific kind of revelation that's not just God directly giving a message, but visually oftentimes illustrating some point or giving some sign. And so I think from the fact that, you know, know, Adam wakes up, he sees the woman, and he says, this, this is the second piece of Hebrew poetry that we get in the Bible. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So uh, I think that 
again, I'm trying to be careful about the way I say some of these things because I know people are sensitive about these subjects. I don't, I don't know that that what's being described when you see woman taken from man's side is the actual material process of how the first woman was put together. I think there's a possibility that that woman, that w- woman or women, <laughs> already existed. But here, Adam is shown that that the woman's purpose is to be his helpmate, be his helper, uh, and that she is the other side of humanity. Uh, you know, it, the message I think is not that woman is inferior to man, but that woman is equally Adam, just as the man is. Um, and so that's why they have to exist together and, and be with one another to be fulfilled. Again, I know that might be kind of controversial to some people and I'm, and I'm not even closed off to the idea that, that, that this is a, a literal material process being described, but I think given the other ways that we see that deep sleep described, um, in, in the old Testament, uh, it would almost be a little bit weird if, if what was being described here is the material process by which woman was made, not to mention the fact that it would mean man was made a different way than woman, which there's not a problem with that, but it's just, you know, I don't know. I'm probably talking too much. No, I mean, I, I, I think you would find objection from a lot of people. I'm, I'm not going to object. I just, this is for a conversation, but I mean, the phrase that, that Adam says she's bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh seems to imply that, you know, she was taken out of man, and that's even in the grammar there. Isha is yeah. the word for woman, and ish is the is the word for man. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, here's here's your inflammatory statement. God made two genders. Yes, humanity made all the rest, all the other hundred and whatever gazillion there are. Two uh, genders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that is that is a, a point that seems almost too basic to make, but I guess it's not. Uh, I, I, you know. There, you know, just like people are described as either good or evil without really any middle ground uh, in in the Bible, people are also in turn when it comes to gender, they're described as either male or female. Um, so there's that. <laughs> Pretty plain for straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so and then we get this note that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So it's an explanation of why uh why why are uh man and woman almost helplessly drawn to one another and then why must life continue why must we procreate? Why must we fight for survival? Why do we keep perpetuating ourselves? Um you know, I think that answer is given right there that that um, man and woman are are uh, born with this innate uh, this this innate drive to become to set out on their own and and become one flesh with with somebody who will be their their other half. You know, there's an interesting thought not to jump into chapter three too much, but when we see the fallout from the mistakes of humanity and the deception of the Nahash there, the, the adversary, part of the woman's punishment, for lack of a better term perhaps here, is is her desire would be towards her husband. And and there's interesting thoughts on that. We'll save that for another podcast. But it's interesting to remember, chronologically speaking, the events of both chapters two and three had long passed when these were penned the first time. 
And so did Moses, assuming Moses, the one who penned this under inspiration, was he allowing some of the dynamics that existed post chapter three? Were they influencing some of his thoughts here in chapter two? Or is this a pure passage of 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 this the, the, what happened you know what i'm saying did did were these thoughts in moses mind as he penned these things and did they influence i i do know what you mean a lot of people who are are maybe um as we feminist leaning is that right to say kind of you know women's empowerment want to say well woman coming out of man from the beginning god is misogynistic because he didn't make her equally the same from the text and, and, and people are just over-politicizing the scriptures anyway with that type of stuff. But there is, I think it helps to remember that Moses being the original author, and again, I think there was editing at some point later in the, in the past because somebody recorded his death. It wasn't him. Yeah. But, but he wrote this under inspiration, most certainly in that time when they were homeless in and outside of the land of Canaan. Inspiration from God here. All these events had happened hundreds or thousands of years prior. And so did it all come to him in one big aha moment and then he wrote it down or did he, was it trickled out from God and little ideas and he pinned them as they came. But we just don't know how that process worked, but it's very possible that his thoughts, um, you know, uh, he already knew chapter three, as we would call it when he penned chapter two, as far as the inspiration of that story. But again, I, oh, that's yeah. here nor there, I don't, but. yeah, I don't think there's any problem with, with saying that. I mean, there clearly is, all through the Bible, there's foreshadowing of things that are going to happen later on. And so I think that, you know, for us as people of faith, we, we chalk a lot of that up to divine inspiration, but there, there's a human element of it too, in that these stories were crafted in a very intentional way and put in a specific order with intentional purposes in mind. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there, there is certainly foreshadowing, because, uh, I mean, the last verse of the chapter is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Well, that idea of nakedness and shame is going to come back in in chapter three and it's going to be inverted. They're naked and now they are ashamed. So there's some fundamental change that happens in the way that man and woman relate to each other between chapter two and three after taking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And, um, so, and so when you get to the end of chapter two, not to interrupt, sorry, oh no, you're you good. have you have essentially the end of the creative process and what you would say perfect order, you know, because no evil had yet appeared. And so it God bringing order out of chaos at, by the end of, of the account in chapter two, you have that. Yeah. And going back to what you said about, you know, sort of. I guess, yeah, feminist would be the right term, feminist reactions to uh, Genesis chapter 2, um, and the idea that that there's misogyny sort of built into the way the creation of man versus woman is presented. Again, I think the in the in if you read it in the Hebrew and if you take into account the ancient Israelite context, it's actually quite the opposite. There's there's more, agen- more agency and more uh, equality is ascribed to woman uh, in Genesis chapter two, than I think you'll find in any other ancient culture. The idea is that uh, that they're they are uh, counterparts to one another, and they have duties and obligations toward one another, man and woman, going both ways. I think that idea carries all through Scripture. The Bible isn't naive about about gender relations, as I think a lot of people in our society are. They don't, the Bible doesn't pretend like there's no difference between men and women and the way they think and the way they, they live their lives and operate. But 
the Bible does uh, clearly in many places identify man and woman as both uh, as both being equally representatives of God, albeit in different ways. But yeah, um, and you know, as far as the stuff I you know I said earlier about you know the deep sleep and the rib and woman being taken out of man and whether that's material or not, again. I, I don't really stake a position either way, much like when we talked about Genesis 1 and some of the things there. Um, I, I'm just laying out the fact that there there are different possibilities that you can that you can see in the text, and I'm just to the point in my study where um, I don't want to just accept easy answers that I've heard all my life and accept them just because they're easy and because I've heard them all my life. They might, in fact, be the right answers. I, I'm not leaving out that possibility at all, but I, I just, uh, I, you know, it, I don't think it does anybody any good to not be aware of the fact that there's complexity to the text and that, uh, you know, when we read it in English, that's not the bottom of the barrel by any means. You got to dig into the original languages to really start to even scrape the surface of oh, all yeah, the meaning. I agree with there. you. I mean, yeah. I've known you long enough and we've had enough of these discussions. I, I, I'm all for that. It it doesn't matter to me a whole lot. Yeah, you know a lot of these issues. When you're back in this part of of the Bible, there are some really important concepts established here and principles. But some of the details that people get stuck on, and they'll they'll pick it as their hill to die on. I'm just like, why? It just doesn't yeah. make a big difference. So I'm 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 pretty easy with that. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I mean, if you're out there and you think that uh, I'm a I'm a heretic for questioning any of that. I totally respect your opinion too. <laughs> you're probably not the first one to think yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've been called worse. So, um, all right. I think that that's enough uh, trouble uh, for for one day. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, join us next time on Big Old Bible Podcast. Uh, I think we're going to talk about the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the composition of the Gospels, how we came to have the four documents that we have, and specifically what some of Luke's concerns are in the Gospel of Luke. So Sounds good. All right. Coolio. We'll see you next time on the Big Old Bible Podcast. In the meantime, stay biblical. Send us your uh, emails at bigoldbiblepodcast at gmail.com. I got to make us a Twitter because I realized the other day I haven't done that. That might be helpful. Um, yeah, keep listening. Keep reading them Bibles. We'll see you next time. Peace. Or maybe I should say shalom. Bye.